For millennia, people from different countries, cultures, and backgrounds have found direction and encouragement in the inspired pages of the Bible. In his day, Jesus directed listeners to search the prophecies of Scripture to find Him the only way of salvation. 2,000 years later, as we stand on the brink of eternity, we no less need the purpose and hope God's Word provides. Sacramento Central Church brings you Receiving the Word, timely Bible messages presented by Pastors Chris Buttery and Mike Thompson. Amazing revelations await you in God's Holy Word, the Bible. Well, this morning, um, I want to talk to you a little bit about being between two truths. Oftentimes you look at the Bible and there appears to be what appears to be sometimes contradicting views, um, and yet they're not. Uh, they simply complement each other. Uh, one of the most famous trials in history was that of Benjamin Francois Curvasseur in London, 1840. I don't know why all the good stories come out of London, England, Pastor Mike, I'm not sure. Curvasseur was a Swiss uh, valet who was accused of slicing the throat of his elderly employee, Lord William Russell. What made his trial notorious was the argument for the defense. The police had bungled the investigation. The evidence against Curvasseur was, uh, was circumstantial at best. One of the officers had perjured himself, and the maid's testimony brought suspicion on herself. Now, the defense attorney, Charles Phillips, was convinced of the innocence of Curvasseur and cross-examined witnesses aggressively. At the beginning of the second day of, day of trial, however, Curvasseur confessed privately to his lawyer that he indeed actually had committed the murder. When asked if he was going to plead guilty, he replied to the lawyer, Charles Phillips, no, sir, I expect you to defend me to the utmost. So Phillips was faced with a dilemma. Should he declare the court, to the court that the man was guilty, which probably would have been the right thing to do, or should he defend Curvasseur as best he could and not break the confidentiality of client-lawyer relationship, which would have been also the right thing to do, which is more important, telling the truth by turning him in or performing his professional duty, thus committing, uh, uh, committing to his promise. Phillips decided to defend the guilty man. But despite Phillips' efforts, Curvasseur was convicted. When the dilemma was later made public, Phillips' decision uh, basically uh, to defend a murderer horrified British society and brought him a great deal of criticism. Who would want to be in Phillips' place in a case like this? What do you do when you're faced with a tough choice like this? What right do you choose? What do you do when you're between two truths? Thank God that when you come to the Holy Bible, you don't have to decide between what appears to be two contending ideas. Jesus tells us in John chapter 10 and verse 35, we'll put it up on the screen for you here, John 10, 35, that the Scriptures cannot be what, friends? Cannot be broken. No one needs to decide, for example, between the Old and the New Testament. You just don't need to. They're not rivals competing for a prominent place. They're not playing a game of tug of war. They're one harmonious whole because there is one author behind them all, and that is the Creator God. And we can confidently contend that God is not bipolar, 
And God is not schizophrenic. He's not Dr. Jekyll one moment and Hyde, Mr. Hyde the next. The God of the Bible is not a, is not a living, eternal contradiction. He is the truth, He is the whole truth, and He is nothing but the truth. So why do Christians often get all mixed up over this? How is it that we are accustomed to segregating and dividing what God has put together? The story is told about the devil who was walking along with his cohorts one evening. They saw a man ahead of them pick up something shiny. What did he find? said one of the cohorts to the devil. He found a piece of truth, the devil replied. Doesn't it bother you that he found a piece of truth? The devil said, no, I'll see to it that he makes a religion out of it. This little story points out that humans are prone to fall uh, to Satan's sophistry of believing part truth lies. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. You recall way back there in the far off garden home of our first parents, that sinister angel beguiled Eve by preaching three part truth lies. Three part truths or three part truth lies. What were they? And you look with me in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 4. He said, you shall not surely what? Die. Die. That was the first one. The second one is found in verse 5 where he says, you shall be like God. That's right. And you shall know good and evil. Those were three part truths the devil was preaching. And the part truth that he was preaching was God's grace apart from his justice. It's okay. You shall not surely die. You'll become like God. You'll know good and evil. Just No justice, just God's grace and his mercy. Were his part truth lies actually true? Did the pair die right after eating the fruit? Well, yes and no. They did die that day. So real was their death on separating themselves from the source of life that to live, they must be born again. Did they become like God? Well, yes and no. Uh, In choosing to worship self, they did not become like God, but they did become gods because self-worship is the basis of all idolatry. Did they know good and evil? Yes and no. They did come to know evil immediately. However, except for the miracle of grace, they would never know the good ever. Now, it's important to note that after the devil had assured the pair that there was no real danger in eating the forbidden fruit, he now, with kind of a sinister gotcha, charged them with sin and left them condemned before the part-truth lie or the part-truth of God's absolute justice apart from His grace. The enemy of souls is always seeking, always seeks to pit one truth against the other, as if they were in conflict with each other. He revels in dividing what God has put together, and so very often human beings fall for it nearly every time. Why? Well, generally speaking, we're attracted to ideologies or things that complement or affirm our own personal lifestyles. This may explain why if we held on to any known sin in our lives, uh, we would be naturally attracted to something that suits our experience, that makes us feel better about it and rationalize it, somewhat like a bee is attracted to nectar. Now, while the Bible doesn't present contradictory pictures, it does present twin truths that complement each other. 
However, these are mistaken oftentimes to be at odds with each other. Now, let's take, for example, the attributes of God. Unfortunately, there are those who trip up over this apparent contradiction of the God of holiness and justice in the Old Testament and the God of love and mercy in the New. However, notice that God does not, and I want to take you with me to Exodus chapter 34. Notice God does not, God describes himself to Moses when passing before him and how Moses responded. Exodus chapter 34, I want you to notice how God describes himself. Exodus 34, 6 through 9. Notice, and the Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and in truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Then he said, if now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray you go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. A point we need to grasp is that God is first holy and then he is everything else. God is first holy and then he is everything else. Often we like to focus on the forgiveness of God, on his love for us, attributes that typically make us feel very comfortable. But forgiveness and love fade in significance when we don't have a clear understanding of God's justice and His holiness. Some have also made a mistake in misrepresenting His mercy to mean that God is tolerant of sin. But this can't be because holiness and sin are polar opposites. We simply can't appreciate that salvation is and what it is unless we grasp something of the meaning of the holiness of God. On the flip side... If we understand the true awfulness of even so-called, or we misunderstand the true awfulness of so-called small sins, we won't be able to appreciate the majesty and the glory of God's holiness. When we emphasize one component of God's attributes to the exception of another, or if we hang on to one, leaving the other out, we're always going to be in grave danger of believing a half-truth, a concoction of the devil. Now, take a sphere for example. Take a sphere, for example. To split through the diameter of a sphere makes two opposite halves out of the whole, or two hemispheres. The same thing happens when the sphere of truth is divided. It creates two opposites, two or part truth opposites, or hemispheres. Yet both parts are required to make a complete whole. If one speaks a half-truth, that, that they convey a vital part truth, but each Part truth is isolated and insulated from its complement complement uh, of truth. Dr. A. Leroy Moore, in uh, one of his books he wrote, describes this half-truth, full-truth concept. He refers to two languages that are spoken. He says one is, and we're going to look at some technical terms, one is paradoxical and the other is dialectical. Paradoxical and dialectical. When referring to paradoxical language, he is always referring to that which appears, appears contradictory, yet in reality is not. I'm quoting now. Paradoxical thus refers to truth, not philosophy, truth that seems to involve contradictory ideas. 
To be completely true, however, both ideas must be held together in tension and thus in balance. Now, when referring to dialectical language, he means a method which pits one pole against the other, destroying the paradoxical principle. Dialectical thinking splits the sphere of truth into opposite hemispheres so that instead of complementing or completing each other, the principles are set against each other. Paradoxical thinking, however, never splits one pole of truth against the other and never seeks to demonstrate the superiority of one principle above the other. It acknowledges tension in all truth. In other words, he encourages not to split the sphere of truth, keep it intact. Let's look at an example. A common and serious result in splitting the sphere is pitting law and grace against each other. With each, of the argument, with each side of the argument seeking to control the meaning of the one uh, it considers to be less important. However, neither principle can be understood except in relation to each other. When law is overemphasized or dominates grace, what are you going to get? A legalistic type of religion, right? Righteousness by works or righteousness by performance. Grace is not usually denied, but is subordinate to the law, and thus we get things off kilter and off balance. Now, on the other hand, when grace dominates the law, the result is, and it's another big word, antinomianism. Antinomianism that resists and even opposes the law of God. Now, this is unfortunate because one cannot fully appreciate grace outside of the law of God. The basis of all spiritual revival is predicated on the law of Jehovah, of Almighty God. So, the splitting of truth leads to a misunderstanding regarding the role of grace and obedience, faith and works, love and law, the spirit of truth and the, uh, the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. You have the Bible saying, for example, in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that we are saved by what? Saved by grace. And yet in Revelation chapter 22, verse 14, it says, uh, those who keep the commandments of God have entrance into the kingdom of God. So we're saved by grace, and yet only those who are obedient can enter in (laughs) to the kingdom of heaven or have right to the tree of life. Now, here's something important to remember. If the Bible said it, then we believe it. Amen? Amen. Uh, If we believe it, then how do we make sense of what appears to be two principles that appear to be opposed to each other? Well, we have to consider the entire framework of Scripture and not let isolated texts or, 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 or hang on to isolated texts on their own. So let's make sense of obedience and grace if you, uh, if you'd follow with me. First of all, Lucifer, he was cast out of heaven because of what? disobedience. That's exactly right. Adam and Eve, they were cast out of the Garden of Eden because of what? Disobedience. So, Jesus has a problem. Jesus has a problem. The problem is, is that he took, if he took people to heaven who were knowingly disobedient to the will of God, then the devil, what would he do? He'd cry foul, and he'd say, you have to take me back to heaven, you see. It is for this reason that though we aren't saved by our obedience, we are saved for our or for obedience. And the person who resists being obedient over time cannot be saved. It is clear from Genesis to Revelation that although people cannot do anything to add to their salvation, 
they can do a number of things to lose their salvation. Can we break the law of God and go on sinning and yet claim to be saved by grace? Paul dealt with that in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Notice what he says here. Romans chapter 6 and verses 1 and 2. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, or certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? So see how the Bible often brings the two principles together, revealing that they are not in opposition to each other, but they are in fact in harmony with each other, complementing each other, forming complete truth and not half-truth or hemispheres of truth. Well, how about faith and works? How about faith and works? Simply this, the test of whether or not, because we're saved by grace through faith, right? But we're judged by the what? We're judged by the law, right? Or, or, or our works, we're judged by our works, right? How, what, what about faith and works? The test of whether or not our salvation is working in our lives is the fruit that we bear. It's as simple as that. One thing is for sure, we cannot bear fruit without being connected to Jesus Christ, amen? Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me, you can do nothing. That's exactly right. So consider with me for a moment a tree. What is the health of the tree dependent upon? Yeah, that's right, it's root system. Good root system equals healthy tree, beautiful foliage of the tree or tasty ripening fruit, depending on what type of tree it is, right? Consider that the soil, the soil is Christ and the root system is your faith in Him. If your faith is rooted in Christ, will the tree of your life be healthy? Will it be bearing fruit? Sure, there'll be fruit. There's definitely should be. And Paul helps us understand the relation of this to each other. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to read all of this together. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. Oftentimes we talk about verses 8 and 9, but we, we don't read verse 10. Let's see the whole picture here. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast... For we are His, that is Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So while we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, Jesus, all of those things don't come alone. It comes ready to work by transforming love. As Paul puts it, we are created or recreated for good works. We are saved by grace through faith in order to perform good works. Let's be honest. We've lived in the land of disease and dysfunction for so long that we would rather defend our diseases and our dysfunction. We prefer to argue about whether God, good works or obedience are necessary or even possible rather than consider that Jesus promised to give us the fruit of a holy and godly life as we surrender to Him in conversion. Let's consider more the promises of God for victory and for power in our lives. What do you say? Sure. Let's not squabble about whether obedience is possible or whether works are good works are necessary. They are. And Jesus provides, the Word of God provides umpteen promises that encourage us and, and spur us on the way and provide power for us for transformed living. Now, 
One of my favorite authors, uh, Elder, the late Elder Herbert Douglas, wrote about the importance of speaking whole truth, not in halves, by illustrating this through the ellipse, the ellipse. The ellipse is basically a stretched out circle like a football, a circle that has one center, a circle has one center, it has a focal point, but with an ellipse, it has two foci, especially, um, perfectly rather, separated, so that if one focus is pushed too far from the other, the perfect ellipse no longer exists. Also, if one emphasizes one focus above the other, the ellipse simply becomes two circles. For example, we get water because of this ellipse principle. Water doesn't consist unless the circles of hydrogen and oxygen are brought into this ellipse, right? Sure. If someone asked which would be more important to, this, to the answer, what would be more important? The answer would be both are equally important if you want a glass of water. Much like, much like asking whether the brain or the heart is more important in order for you to live. We simply cannot live without both, amen? Equal, we need equal, equally uh, are important for our lives. Now, truth is like that. Truth in any area of thought, whether it is theology, whether it is philosophy, music, law, education, can be looked upon in the form of an ellipse. So in politics, we, are, we see two foci, socialism and democracy. In economics, the foci are Keynesian and free trade, or government control and capitalism. In education, you have content-centered versus student-centered education. The truth is that both sides have something helpful to say about the subject. Uh, Douglas says that in theology, truth is, sum, is the sum total of its objective and subjective elements. One focus is the emphasis on transcendence or revelation, and the other is imminence, which is human response such as reason and feeling. So he says, here you've got the objective truth of a God who loves us and wants to save us, and then you've got the subjective response of those, because salvation won't do anyone any good unless they respond to it with faith, you see. He goes on to say, to oppose or ignore or underemphasize one against the other would make two circles, destroying this ellipse. So, salvation truth together, binds together, the objective will of God, and what is the will of God? The will of God is that all men would be saved. And the subjective yes of a responsible person, person who responds to that, that objective truth that God wants to save all. As water can't be divided and remain water, so the objective and the subjective elements of salvation can't be divided and remain salvation. No one asks which side of the ellipse is more important. So when a person and I want to talk a little bit with you about two, big, two more big words, justification and sanctification. When a person overemphasizes justification when talking about salvation, and justification is simply Christ's work for the believer in redeeming him and forgiving him. That's justification in a, in a nutshell. If someone overemphasizes justification, it can lead to a passive Christian experience with faith becoming primarily a matter of mere mental assent to the truth. It doesn't have any change in the life. This can lead to the careless phrase that the atonement was completed on the cross, because it wasn't. The payment for sin as a, as a part of the complete atonement was paid on Calvary's cross, but the atonement wasn't completed on the cross. 
Now, sanctification, if there's an overemphasis on sanctification, and sanctification is simply God's work in and through the believer, cleansing from sin and providing victory and power in the life. If there's an overemphasis on sanctification, that can lead to maybe warm feelings or reason or good works as a test of faith. This often minimizes the primary authority of God and it leads to thoughts like, it's not true, if it's not truth, it's not truth for me unless I feel it or unless it makes sense to me. Or people may end up placing their faith on visual evidence like faith healers or speaking in tongues or charismatic speakers or in the quiet satisfaction that they have dutifully kept the commandments. That's what happens when one overemphasizes sanctification. So an overemphasis on justification tends to make imputed righteousness, that's the, the covering of Christ's righteousness on the repentant believer's life, an overemphasis on justification tends to make imputed righteousness the most important element of salvation. Is it an important element of salvation? Absolutely it is. And overemphasizing on, on sanctification, which is imparted righteousness, Christ's righteousness infused into the believer's life, tends to make human performance the basis of salvation. So is the imparted righteousness of Christ important? Absolutely. But one is not more important than the other. You have the imputed and you have the imparted righteousness of Jesus, you see. And overemphasis, for example on Christ's ministry on the cross to the neglect of His high priestly ministry tends to minimize the important work of the Holy Spirit in the life. So those who overemphasize grace tend to seek assurance in the security of certain uh, legal transactions taking place up there in heaven without a corresponding adjustment in their life to order their life in harmony with God's will and purpose. And yet, on the other hand, many do not place proper emphasis on grace, tend to seek assurance in right behavior. Well, I'm doing this, and I'm doing this right, so I must be right with God. Both of these, neither of these picture, neither, neither of these individuals picture of gracious, forgiving Lord who extends His personal power to the penitent so that the sin that needs forgiving can be overcome. It's not seen in its true light. Now, I want you to notice with me what the Bible says uh, and, and how it places justification and sanctification alongside of each other. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. I want to take a look at three texts, and there are many, but I just want to take a look at three texts with us here this morning. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, we know it. It says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Hold it there, hold it there. What is the forgiveness of sins? That is what? justification or the imputed righteousness of Christ, right? Sure, exactly right. So notice, 1 John 1, 9, we just read, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us, that's justification, and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that's sanctification. Can't have one without the other. Jesus doesn't just forgive us and then leave us to ourselves moping around, struggling with sin issues and temptation, and says, all the best, I died for you on Calvary's cross, all the best. That's not how it works. It's not how it works. Neither though does Jesus say, here's my law, I want you to obey, and it provides no power for obedience. He says, I will cleanse you if you confess. I will forgive you if you confess, and I will cleanse you. I will impute my righteousness, and I will impart my righteousness. Now, go over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. 
Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Notice, Romans 8 verse 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. What is that? To those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. What is that? Justification, right? That's justification, that's right. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the what? The Spirit, what's that? Sanctification. You see how Paul brings the two thoughts together? Justification and sanctification. I'm going to forgive you, and I'm going to forgive you, I'm going to save you, I'm going to save you for obedience, you see. Justification and sanctification. One more, Matthew 6. Matthew chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Matthew chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. This is in the Lord's Prayer. Notice, Jesus is teaching the disciples, He's teaching you and I how to pray, and He says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. What's that? Justification, is it not? Surely, that's justification. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What is that? sanctification. So you see in several instances in the Bible how the Bible writers, including Jesus, brings justification, sanctification together, brings pardon and power for a holy life together. He brings forgiveness and he brings the impartation of the Spirit of God into the life. He brings those two thoughts together, not one opposing the other, but one harmonious whole. Truth, truth is is the embracing ellipse as Herbert Douglas writes, not two separate elements. Salvation, according to uh, Dr. Moore, is paradoxical, not dialectical, by splitting the spheres of truth. Now, we must always bring together the sweetness and the substance of the gospel. Now, some of you like peanut butter sandwiches, and in peanut butter, you're going to get good protein and you're going to get some fat, substance, right? But to add a little bit of jelly right there, a little substance, makes it sweet and nice. We must always bring together the sweetness and the substance of the gospel because the Bible brings it to us. God always brings together the sweetness and the substance of the gospel, never one without the other. Now, as Seventh-day Adventists, we are blessed to have the writings of Ellen White, who we believe was given the, uh, the prophetic gift And I want you to notice some of her statements before we close relating to this issue of these, of the ellipse of truth, the sphere of truth, the substance and the sweetness of the gospel. Notice this in Messages to Young People, page 35. She says, the righteousness by which we are justified is imputed. The righteousness which we are sanctified is imparted. The first is our title, like a deed to a house or a title to a car that says I'm the legal possessor or the holder. The first is our title to heaven. The second is our fitness or qualification for heaven. So this righteousness Christ offers, both of of these aspects of the gospel, He offers to each one of us, His imparted and His imputed righteousness or imputed and imparted righteousness. That's uh, That's messages to young people, page 35. Notice, great controversy, page 489. The intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. By his death, he began that work which after his resurrection, he ascended to complete in heaven. Can't have one 
without the other. And then in that beautiful little book, Steps to Christ, page 63, she says, our only ground of hope is in the righteousness of Christ. Notice, imputed to us and in that wrought by His Spirit working in and through us. Our only ground of hope is in the righteousness of Christ imputed and imparted to us. And then two more, Manuscripts Release, volume 20, page 308. To talk of Christ without the Word leads to sentimentalism. I want you to notice here what she's referring to. There are folk who will uplift Jesus and talk about Jesus and mention Him and talk about Him to the detriment or to the putting down or to the neglect of the Bible. They talk about Jesus, but there's no word. And so you're left wondering, what Jesus are they referring to here? She says, to talk of Christ without the word leads to sentimentalism. And to receive, notice on the flip side, to receive the theory of the word without accepting or appreciating its authors makes men legal formalists. She says, but Christ and his precious word are in perfect harmony. So when we talk of Jesus, let us, up, uh, let us uphold the Word of God. When we uphold the Word of God, let us uphold Jesus at the same time, and we'll avoid these ditches and these extremes. And then lastly, Ministry of Healing, page 129. The progress of reform depends upon a clear recognition of fundamental truth, while on the one hand, danger lurks in a narrow philosophy, in a hard, cold orthodoxy, on the other hand, there is great danger in careless liberalism. So here you've got two, two groups of people, those who are focusing on the law, those who are crossing their T's and dotting their I's. They've got their little list of things to do. Legalist, cold, formal religion. Yet on the other hand, you've got those who uh, seek to ignore the plain writings of the Word of God, God's commands. And they're just simply focusing on the love and the grace of Jesus and it makes them feel warm and cozy and comfortable. And sin is never pointed out and there's no repentance and there's no remorse. She says we must avoid both. We must avoid both. Listen, friends. Listen, we need to be careful never to play off one aspect of truth to the other. You've, uh, you remember the old story about the blind men who were asked to describe an elephant? Do you remember that? One felt the tail of the elephant, and they described the elephant. They said, the elephant is like a rope. And then another felt the leg and said that the elephant is like a tree. And a third felt the trunk of the elephant and said, the elephant is like a snake. Now, it sounds funny for sure, but we need to be careful we don't do this with the gospel. We all start off spiritually blind. And even when our eyes are wide open to the gospel of Jesus, Jesus is still bigger. Jesus is still wider. Jesus is still deeper than we initially thought. It's my prayer. It's my prayer that we will not limit God in what He wants to do for us and in and through us. Let's be sure to always embrace the whole truth, the whole truth, and by doing so, enjoy to the fullest extent the privilege of salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What do you say? Yes. Amen. Amen. We're so glad you decided to tune in to today's Receiving the Word program. If you have a special prayer request, we would be happy to pray about it for you. 
To discover more about the Bible through our free online Bible studies or to listen to more life-changing Bible messages, go to sacentral.org and click on the Media Resources tab. If you've been blessed or encouraged by our ministry and God impresses you to support us, then visit our website or write to us at 6045 Camellia Avenue, Sacramento, California, 95819. Always gladly receive God's Word.